Welcome to HTI Open Plaza. In this episode, Dr. Angela Valenzuela and Patricia Nunez talk to Tony Diaz about his new book, The Tip of the Pyramid, Cultivating Community Cultural Capital. For more information, please visit htiopenplaza.com. Happy to be part of this conversation. So excited about your book, author, creative writer, community activist, Libro Traficante Extraordinaire, uh, Tony Diaz, uh, with his book, The Tip of the Pyramid, Cultivating Community Cultural Capital. And I'm here with my colleague, Patricia Nunez, who is a doctoral student at the University of Texas. Would you like to Introduce yourself further. Mm -hmm. Hola, mucho gusto. Un placer estar aquí. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here and have this conversation with Dr. Valenzuela and uh, Libro Tarpicante, Tony Diaz. Um, gracias. So it's really cool. I'll just jump into it. Uh, I think that as I walk away from your book, and of course, I wrote a blurb for it, and, um, and I feel very excited about it. It is a uh, maybe even an experimental genre. Um, I liked it. It worked for me because it starts out with the mystical, the the you know the the question of what does it mean to uh, to be at a tipping point with respect to this imagery, this symbol, this metaphor of the pyramid. And you connected early on in your book to your visit to Teotihuacan. And that gives birth to the Aztec muse. And then somehow, I don't know how exactly, but just sort of like the different influences of your life, it culminates in the in an earlier part of your career when you and I connected after having met each other in Houston back in the day um, as part of the Libro Traficante movement that brought books into, into um, uh, Arizona and involved a book tour so that you could replace those books that had, had been banned by the Arizona Department of Education in Tucson when the Mexican American Studies was that program in the in the uh, Tucson Unified Public Schools was unjustifiably I mean just horrifically dismantled. And of course, that involved a court case. You address that in your book, but I want to begin with how uh, how you experienced sort of these earliest breaths of this book, and you know why why did you uh, go from the pyramid to this concept of uh, community cultural capital, and together with that, cultural accelerators. No, thank you so much, Dr. Valenzuela. Really great to convene with the both of you. Really appreciate everyone who's coming together to get this podcast going, because this discussion is another example of community cultural capital. And of course, thank you for your support. More importantly, though, Dr. Valenzuela, thank you for paving the way for this discussion, because even if we don't have time to get to it, um, your work, be it the books that you've written or the scholars you've trained, or your testimony, <laughs> your intellectual work was used as evidence in a court case against racism. Uh, all these are amazing moments that we're living through. However, they might not get documented uh, the same way our community is not documented. So first of all, I, I do want to thank you for all that, but also set the stage for, for what we're talking about in that I really feel that we've touched on a little bit that the forms that exist, especially from corporate media and corporate publishing, do not fully convey our experiences. And in some cases, they just erase us. And I think our gente feel this at every level. And you asked me about the, the spiritual part. Um, you know, the, the book, The Tip of the Pyramid, has a picture of me <laughs> there at Teotihuacan. And I feel that in some ways, I finally caught up to the words to, the con to convey what I was feeling or experiencing at that moment. And even when I think about the picture, there's some people that are just walking up and down a tourist trap, right? <laughs> you know, um, I really was having all these revelations in my mind 
And I really remember thinking, wow, we are brainwashed. I am standing on the proof of our gente's power, beauty, intelligence. And this has been kept from me. And the fact that this structure here exists is testament to, to all that. <laughs> and part of me was angry, part of me was thrilled. Another part of me also realized that it is powerful to be able to experience that. Amidst folks that are not experiencing it, not noticing it, taking it for granted, and maybe don't realize that. I, I, I would also add, to make it more down to earth, perhaps that's why you love teaching. Perhaps that's why you love dealing with our community. I love being the founder of Nuestra Palabra because I think in those moments when we all team up and we put books in the hands of our youth and we see them light up, I think they're experiencing the same thing, I think. But as you know, and we might touch on, there's so many forces at work to bury that moment, subsume that moment. There are forces at work to prevent that from happening. The proof is that right-wing legislators in Arizona 10 years ago banned Mexican-American studies. That's, that's all the proof we need for that. On the flip side, at, at a less dramatic level, when those wonderful experience happens to our youth and they get hands about our culture, when they get their hands on books about our culture, our terms on our terms, and they light up, so many other people ignore it or subsume it as well. So I think a lot of that was at work, uh, especially in the preface. So in the preface, I touch on some of that, the preface to the precipice. And then in the book, I, I, I do focus more concretely on community cultural capital and, and some of the movements that you mentioned, be it the Libre Traficante movement and, and less well-known, Nuestra Palabra Latino writers having their say. Mm -hmm. so, something that, that moved me and kind of um, kind of unsettled me, and you spoke a little bit to this this morning, was the format of the book. So I'd like you to expand a little of that because I, I appreciated aspects of that format that were kind of... Uh, unsettling in some ways because you know me being in school right now I feel unsettled in in that context as well right so can you talk about that I really loved how um you shared this morning what came to be in that in, in making those decisions and, and and I think yeah we can talk about the unsettling and yeah uh I think I kind of mentioned it our hint that has these misgivings at different times, right? And even if we're high-level executives, if we are obreros, we feel it, we can't put it into words. On that note, I think with the format of books, I'd have to say, I don't think that there is a format, especially if we talk about corporate publishing, and I'm gonna say corporate education as well, because you're mentioning mm -hmm. the educational experience and you're at the most advanced, you know, levels of it. Um, I don't think the formats that have been cultivated in those arenas are organic to our community. And here's what I mean. So in the book itself, I do have these inner chapters that I call cultural acceleration essays that are reprintings of essays that were published during the course of some of these movements in traditional formats that could be for example, um, one excerpt is from the Houston Chronicle during some of the early campaigns to fight for uh, Mexican-American studies in Texas. And I do that for a few reasons so that exactly some new readers, they've got so many expectations on what a book by a Latino or a Chicano can or should do. It's almost unfair. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> it's like we've been so removed from our community and culture that when we get that book, we expect it to do so many things and it, and it can't, um, and it shouldn't, right? And, and if it's published by commercial publishing, I, I say this in the book and it may be insulting to some, most executives in, in, in a commercial publishing entity, they are illiterate about Latinos, yet they're gonna be in charge of investing money to, to get books to reach us. So, so I'll, I'll just give a quick, uh, 
Quotidi in answer to that. I wanted to create a new format, but at the same time, give people enough common ground where they can lean into the book. So those inner chapters are examples of that. And in, in fact, the inner chapters, I had long discussions with the, um, the uh, editor, uh, you know, uh, Chelsea Shannon. Shannon Chelsea was a great editor for the, for the book. We had long discussions. The inner chapters conform to uh, traditional grammar. The rest of the book then is a different format, even with the language in that I don't want to propagate the hierarchical rules of the King's English. And one small way then is, um, you know, even the phrase, the King's English, I'm not going to capitalize the King's English. I'm not going to give him a, a, a capital K. <laughs> I refuse to give an apostrophe S Y because the King doesn't possess anything in America. We've overthrown him. <laughs> America deposed them. Why are we still conforming to the rules of the King English, which is a hierarchical approach to language and thought that doesn't even imagine our people. And, and uh, I'll say it this way. Um, when we allow ourselves to be ruled, governed by the King's English, even our imagination, we run into problems that have persisted throughout the U.S. experience. For example, when, you know, when the Constitution says all men are created equal, there's going to be oppressors that say it does mean just men. <laughs> and then we as scholars have to keep playing with it. So, so for me then, as a writer and creator, I wanted to play with the chapters. So I don't want to scare people from thinking, hey, you got to have a PhD to, to lean into the book. I did want to put irreverent parts in there, jokes, but still chronicle what was happening during Libro Traficante, but also not your corporate traditional handbook. So I would argue that I wanted to create something organic to our community and also not define terms that corporate, pu corporate publishers wouldn't understand but then really appeal to language that I believe cultural exceders in our community know and understand. Um, so, so at the end of the day, I play a lot with that in the format. Um, let me just say one last thing too, though. I also know that the version of a book that we thought existed in the 80s um, that no longer exists. So, so likewise, um, I want the one chapter in the book says this is not a book tour. So it's almost meta. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I would add that the book then is one step. This conversation has to inform the book as well to fill in some of the blanks. And the last thing I would say is I wrote this book specifically as part of a series to catch up with all the issues that our community needs to touch on. I think it's very provocative. Um, and you know, I think that that um, that uh, I, it has a cadence. It's funny. I found myself laughing throughout throughout, uh, uh, throughout the book in different parts. It was uh, it was just amusing to you know even just bring this discourse of the, the king's English, the king's Spanish, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you know to really think about how you know, the, the, the cultural capital that we're taught to, that we're supposed to appreciate is it's standard English. It's what some might, might call, um, you know, sort of mainstream um, uh, educational capital. And um, I, I think what your readers will, uh, will really want uh, to, to understand, and I, as I want to understand is what is that relationship between uh, community cultural capital and uh, cultural accelerators and cultural acceleration? Yes, no, thank you. And again, like, like we said earlier in the interview, I think I've caught up to my insights at Teotihuacan. And what I would add as well, um, not just playing with the genre and the language, but it seems clear that we should rely on metaphors that are over 500 years old. Why? Well, 500 years ago, Spanish pirates came to Abiyala and burned our libraries, destroyed our art, enslaved our people. 
And metaphors previous to that were more organic to our community than at post that. Why? Well, then all of a sudden we have this um, language imposed on us. And one thing I, I do talk about in there, um, I think when I say corporate English, people might mistake it to mean just memos and so forth. I would add that the King's Spanish, um, as, as we know then, comes from this uh, view of the world where a king literally tried to control language. <laughs> you know, the Spanish created institutions to say, well, here are how the words should look and act. And of course, our community was always mongrels, half-breeds, wrong. In fact, that's why they burned our books, perhaps. Uh, additionally, that version of imagination and language is based on, well, if we say there's a king, the king is going to say he, and it's, it's a he, gained his power by divine right. <laughs> and then <laughs> there's a caste system in there. Um, so, and again, for young people, I'd say this is simple. It's pretty simple, as I say in the book. Um, white is the default setting for race in America. And on any given day, we are signing user agreements to that effect, including the language that we use. And what I found out when I was a kid on the south side of Chicago was that um, no one really understands English. <laughs> so, so my first job as a kid, as I say in the book, was to translate the outside world which spoke English into Spanish for my parents. And that was one immediate way that I understood the power of language because all of a sudden I was promoted to the role of adults. You know, um, and when I grew up on the South side of Chicago, it was pretty brutal, the education system where I'd have teachers just tell kids, sit down and shut your big mouths. <laughs> but because I could translate, It'd be like, except you, Antonio, come over here. And I'd be like, wow, I got promoted. <laughs> you know, I got promoted among, from the kids to the, to the adults. And also later on, it dawned on me that even these adults who spoke English don't really understand how those words work. And, and here's how I would add, just to get back to your original question. Um, as Gloria Anzaldúa broke down all the different versions of Spanish, right now in every barrio in the nation, we've got young kids that can navigate different versions of Spanish, different versions of English, as well as multi-social media. That's brilliant. They should be revered and praised for that. Instead, we're, we're a few years out of the English-only movement, right? So, so I would say very specifically, our community should understand its power in navigating all those different Englishes. And we should understand that even grammar is at the service of writers and we as writers can shape it as well. What, that, that's what I hope to dramatize through the book. Eurocentrism, cultural it, chauvinism, right? Exactly. So I, I, it, I'm really interested in, uh, Patricia, what you think about um, how it translates into what we know about like curriculum and pedagogy in, in our world, we talk about funds of knowledge. You have to draw on the funds of knowledge of the children, asset-based pedagogies, culturally relevant curricula, you know, mining kids from and, and families and parents from where they are. So, but what do you think? Let me ask Patricia this question. What do you think um, is the value of this concept of a cultural accelerator? Um, I find it so interesting and something that we want to highlight in education and, and with teachers, this idea that our, our students, even just this conversation that we're having about language, right? Like, when will English lose its status so that what we see students do in this allowing one language to shape the other and use what you know what we call spanglish or and in, in, in the brilliance that we find in words like puchar that that i'll hear if i go to you know brownsville and if i go to chicago puchar is going is going <laughs> to be a word that i'm gonna hear right in nuestra comunidad se van a usar porque todo lo que se toca 
se siente. Everything we feel shapes each other and, and allows each other to become and be fluid, right? So I find that when we don't allow teachers to think in these ways, or we don't allow curriculum to show up in these ways, we're not really um, appreciating all of this community and cultural capital that, that children bring with them, right? That is, like you say, they are able to navigate a variety of spaces. What I think we're seeing now with uh, culturally sustaining, culturally um, relevant pedagogy is we're seeing the fear of those who can only navigate spaces monoculturally, Eurocentrically, monolingually, right? And then this idea that, oh my goodness, these kids can navigate some transnationally, they know how to speak that language of crossing uh, borders. They know how to, what documents are needed and what is needed to make such transactions, right? And this is a community cultural capital, right? What I found really interesting in, in, in your book, and I really liked this, it really resonated, the idea that we rely on our instinct, right? to understand how to navigate our communities. And that our children in, in, in schooling make those moves, a veces desafortunadamente, at the cost, sometimes at the cost of, of community relations, at the cost of realizing the, the power, el poder que cargamos, right? Um, so um, I'd, I'd like, I'm really curious about that instinct and where did it come from? Like when I think about it and right now that I'm saying the word, I feel the warmth right here in like my belly, my center, right? De que sabemos <laughs> cómo movernos, con quién movernos. You know, who am I going to have this conversation with? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Dr. Yes, Dr. no, I, I'd, I'd love to. Um, and I'm going to resist touching on some of the great insights you just came up with, but maybe I'll get back to some of that. But um, I do want to say that when you talk about that wonderful, great feeling, perhaps sometimes as scholars in the ivory tower, we're supposed to reject that in some ways and we get rewarded for it in some ways. But at some point we've gone far up the corporate ladder or the ivory tower and look back and we're very removed from it at what cost, right? Well just for professionals, at what cost? One day, if you have a Spanish surname, you might be called into a room and be expected to speak for an entire people. And also, you may be judged if you don't deliver that audience. And that is a high bar. That, so that, that, that's one thing. I want to talk about that great feeling because we talked earlier about the form of the book. I wanted to dramatize it more than explain it. And for me, I talk about being the first Chicano to be uh, at the UH Creative Writing Program. And a couple things, a few things. One, mm -hmm. um, one, essay, one essay in the piece is titled, in the book is called Importing, Importing Mexicans from Chicago. Because when I, when I came to Texas and found out I'm the first Chicano to get an MFA, at the UH Creative Writing Program, I'm like, but this is occupied Mexico. <laughs> everywhere I look, you know, <laughs> everywhere I look, there's Chicanos, Mexican Americans, Latinos. How am I the first? There was that disconnect that would later reveal itself. And to your to your question, how did I navigate the UH Creative Writing Program? Me traje mis chivas. Yo me traje mis chivas de Chicago. That's just one instinct. <laughs> that I've always had, kind of like you're touching on, you know, we had that in el corazón, ganas, you know, mysticism, what have you, culture, but yo me traje mis chivas. And I've always maintained that connection in different ways. Here it was quite literal, but it was also symbolic for me because my folks were migrant workers in Texas. So in some ways I was, in some ways, I was bringing them back to the place they left for greater opportunities. Um, I don't quite get to touch on the fact that my folks left Texas 
to follow the industrial revolution to Chicago, where my, my parents worked for, uh, my dad worked for the railroad, which meant, and I do talk about this in the book, I could go to school. We had a fixed address. There was an income. I could go to school. Um, and perhaps it was because my job was to translate. There was pros and cons to that. So I, I dramatized that warm, wonderful feeling by talking about how the culture played significant roles in my life without putting it, without putting it in the words um, because it's there. And, and again, that's a whole other book. <laughs> you know, that, that's why I say it's a series because that's there and I'm glad you touched on it. Um, well, it's a critique of assimilation is what it is on the one hand, on the one hand. And on the other, I think it really is honoring those um, those so skills that that instinct that that soul that we bring to this country, um, or that uh, we already have because we're of this continent, we're indigenous to this continent, right? That um, I think it's it tends to be like either like marginalized or missed, not recognized, misrecognized, because it's powerful. Right. And so I think that, you know, when we talk about, you know, these frameworks like like, um, you know, community cultural wealth, uh, funds of knowledge, asset based pedagogies and things like that, it's the same. It's, it's the same idea. Uh, but I think what you uh, add to this is this concept of acceleration at a time when we need, you know, we need to be at warp speed, given the real crisis and crises that are in our community that just seem to multiply daily. I and mean, if we just look at the environment, mm -hmm. right? if we look at, at um, you know, what happened recently in Uvalde, Texas, and, mm -hmm. you know, and we, uh, you know, look at, um, you know, uh, at political battles that we're having right now, like at, like in LULAC with a, a near, a near, a near coup. I don't know if you heard about mm -hmm. that by, by the Puerto Rican Republican leadership in the island. Um, um, the irony is that, you know, we have these forces deliberately working against us because uh, particularly as my Mexicanos and Latinos generally, we are the, the elephant in the living room, right? I mean, the, the future depends on us. And the irony is, on the one hand, is that we're being, um, um, you know, marginalized, we're being discriminated against, uh, but, but on the other hand, I think what's really redemptive and beautiful about your work is how we always push back. I mean, we mm -hmm. always do, but we push back in a way um, that, I mean, not always, I don't think we can overgeneralize, mm -hmm. but I think, I think that certainly with respect to the themes that you take up, we push back in ways that are very wholesome, very fulfilling mm -hmm. and nurturing and exciting. And so, um, and so I see the cultural acceleration, you know, in as much as it's, it's anchored in our identities, our cultura, you know, uh, who we are, at least the best of who we are, that that is what, you know, when in community, we can, we can savor, you know, savor those moments, those triumphant moments, uh, even though there's a lot of times it doesn't work quite work out the way we want it to. It's just the, the very act of step of uh, standing up to um, injustice is triumphant in itself, right? And of course we want to mm -hmm. triumph, but I think that, I think that, uh, I, I think it's that sixth sense. I think that we taste it. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we feel that it's like, it's within reach. Um, and it's not, it's not, you know, like dropping bombs. It's not that. I mean, we don't, you don't bomb your own home, by the way. We are home. We are always home. And, and we as a community are home wherever we go. That's what we try to teach in our pedagogies because you've got a community wherever you go. If, if things aren't happening, it's probably not because it's not happening. It's because you're not involved. <laughs> so get involved and become part of, of, of the network and be part, become, become, part of the legacy agenda that agendas that we've had for inclusion in curriculum in textbooks to, to diversify the teacher workforce to, uh, to diversify all occupations and and to achieve economic justice 
in the process, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, mean, I think in that order, I think that's what we bring mm -hmm. to the equation. The the neoliberal model, I mean, the cultural cultural um, uh, uh, identities and attachments are epiphenomenal. They're like, well, if that happens along the way, that's good. But other than that, you know, we're to um, believe that we're primarily um, driven by economics and rationality when when we know that there's a pyramid, uh, you know, we <laughs> there's a pyramid, you know, and and that it, it inspires. And, and so maybe we can talk a little bit about the pyramid because I'm just so intrigued by that, you know, and I do think of like dialectics and I don't think this is a dialectic that you're talking about. Not, not that certain things aren't dialectical such as relations mm -hmm. between black and brown people against mm -hmm. the white establishment. Um, um, but I think that, I think that you're, you're encouraging us to think of, of almost an alternative universe Right. I mean, not that not that the other mm -hmm. side isn't ever present and foreboding and hostile, but because you're bringing the totality of who we are into into light, and you're honoring that as as uh, intrinsic uh, as as a value that is intrinsic unto itself. The mm -hmm. very act of not just doing but being is 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 awesome. No, I, I really appreciate you putting in that in that context, and you're you're kind of taking us up, lifting lifting us up. I got I'm going to depress us for a couple seconds now, okay? Because I also don't want people to think we're exaggerating. And I need to repeat: ten years ago, right wing Republicans in Arizona banned Mexican American studies. They took what should have been the gold standard in ethnic studies, we're talking about 80 books that dramatized everything we're talking about. Poems, short stories, novels, nonfiction. They did all that. And as you had to testify in a courtroom to overturn this racist law, and as Dr. Cabrera's work was proof of, students who took these courses not to any of our surprises, excelled in school. Why? All the reasons we've touched on, everything, right? And, you know, again, this is, this is epitomized in DNA when corporate grammar, corporate publishing says we, we have to italicize the word Chicano. We have to put a hyphen between Mexican-American. That's a small way. A larger way is, I repeat, our history and culture were banned in recent history. If you didn't know about that, ask yourself why you didn't know about that. If you knew about it, is it being allowed to fade? So, so I say all that because that's, this is the context that we are living in. Um, now, <laughs> that's, that's the part that could enrage. It could depress. And clearly, looking back, another reason, uh, Dr. Nunez, you asked me about the form of the book. I did not want to write a corporate genre book that just marked the tenure occurrence of one campaign. Why? The folks that want to silence us, as I say in the book, have studied our movement, the work of the dreamers, the work of ethnic studies before us, the people before us, Black Lives Matter. They've studied that and they have adapted. And it is clear too that this attack on our imagination and people is cyclical because 10 years ago this happened you, you can look now how the ban has been updated they're not going to ban mexican american studies directly why because we schooled them so they're not going to use that exact same tactic but they're going after our community imagination in different ways now let's get take it back to the pyramid i i started writing the book on the 10th near for publication for the 10th anniversary of the Libre Traficante Caravan to market, acknowledge it, chronicle it. Also, leading up to the 25th anniversary of Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say, which is the, the nonprofit I founded, um, which I say formed the base. I, I started that in 1998. That helps us create some of the cultural accelerators that help form. Libre Traficante Caravan. I should give a shout out to the co-founders of the Libre Traficante Caravan, Brian Paras, 
Diana Lopez, Lupe Mendes, uh, Laura Rasso. Um, but also I started writing it 500 years after pirates from Spain came to Abiyala and destroyed our libraries, burned our books. Having said that, um, let, let's, let's take us back. You were, taking, you were getting us fired up. That could have just enraged us. But together with that think tank of individuals, we said, how can we respond in a way that uplifts folks? The Libertad Ficante Caravan was fun. It was a terrible attack on our community. It was beautiful for all of us to come together, celebrate the books, and to smuggle books across the Southwest to become Libertad Ficantes. But I'll say this, though. All the principles we touched on, they're buried in our community. We are unearthing them. What does the symbol of the pyramid mean? I tell you what, um, Dr. Valenzuela, you asked me at the beginning, what was I experiencing there at Teotihuacan? The more we unearth about the pyramids, it was in tune with the environment. It was in tune with astronomy. It was in tune with art, math. It was in tune with government. Um, and as I, you know, I say, um, I, I like to speculate that the, the Spanish raiders, anything that was gold, they melted. Any person they could enslave, they could. Um, perhaps they were told that there's something more valuable in the pyramid. Um, I mean, if it was made of gold, they'd have melted it down and it'd be, it'd be on display in different museums or on the necks of, uh, of, of royalty. Um, perhaps the people told them there was something more valuable in there. What was coded in, the, in that is our legacy as intellectuals, as living, thriving individuals. Um, the people touched it to build it. Um, and, and that symbol is powerful because it's at least 500 years old. And if we have not lost that history, we could look back thousands of years to it. And what I love is is there concrete. It is a testament to all that for us to, to unearth. And it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's like a beautiful work of art. So an interesting story, of course, is that as Cortes and his men were making their way across to, to Tenochtitlan is that they would see pyramids and they would cover them up. Well, what's interesting is that is that it, it's impossible to cover up Teotihuacan, right? It's impossible. I mean, so they covered up El Templo Mayor, they covered up all of the pyramids, right? Um, and then they built churches on top of them as a symbol of colonial dominance and domination. So I think that what, you know, what we can also take away is that um, we haven't lost it all. You know, we, we, there is still the possibility of recovering a lot of what was, you know, quote unquote, stolen or, or lost because they could not completely conquer as much. And even with us as Latinos, as Mexicanos, um, when they try to completely conquer us and hurt us and damage us, um, it's, it's never uh, foolproof. Uh, they, it, it would have happened already if it were. And if anything, because of the cultural capital, the acceleration, the network and networks that we have, and we all know each other, by the way. I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, that was the thing about Arizona is that, you know, we all felt it in carne propia because, I mean, we knew Curtis and Norma mm. and Jose and Augustine. And you know, some of us had gone years before to make presentations. I must've gone two or three times myself to be uh, connected to that program. And so there's a deep root structure that, mm -hmm. um, that if it gets some watering, if it gets some water, it, yes. it, uh, it comes alive, it never dies. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I really like this idea that, that uh, we can accelerate by connecting to each other uh, mm -hmm. in the way that we have in the ethnic mm -hmm. studies movement, but also connecting to our roots and nourishing those those histories and identities and, and ways of knowing and being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, you mentioned it is like familia. 
Exactly, because um, if I can point out one aspect that I think we brought as writers, intellectuals, and community organizers, the the ban on Arizona, as as you know profoundly, had the, the four prongs, and one of the parts of that law that was passed that scared people was that the, the law prohibited courses that promote the overthrow of the government. And obviously, if you walk into any supermarket and walk up to someone and say, listen, do you think students should, pro should pr be promoted, should be told to overthrow the government? They're going to say, of course not. And what happens then if, if all you have are, if you're illiterate about Latinos, if all you have are stereotypes and someone tells you these Chicano professors are telling these Chicano kids to overthrow the government, you will be scared. But as you say, we knew that community on the Nuestra Palabra side down that curriculum were our brothers and sisters, right? So when we heard, wait a minute, you're accusing Sandra Cisneros of promoting the overthrow of the government, Dagoberto Gil, Ana Castillo, it was ridiculous and then personally offensive because we knew them, they were familia, and, and in Houston, we had been working with them when their books came up, to have them on the radio show, in person, and additionally, we had been working since 1998 to get books in the, the hands of our community. We also knew that that law, if it stayed in place and spread, could debilitate our community cultural capital for decades and generations to come. So like you're saying too, though, it really was like jumping to the defense of our familia in different ways, as well as the familia of students coming up as well. Yeah. I I did as a public educator. I think it, it, you know I need I need to to speak a little to not having the opportunity, uh, in and um, you know witnessing students uh, and, and unfortunately you know this feeling of of I guess I'm not complicit right. I think sometimes being part of the system you feel like it, but this idea that. It has been debilitating in a sense to individuals in the community when when they're not given or are allowed to make that connection to their community cultural capital, right? And I think that that's what we're kind of saying too, right? That schooling can be that place where your where your connection is weakened, right? And as, as educators and as Latina educators, Chicana educators, it is so important that we have access to spaces where we ourselves can think of what is the, our cultural capital, our community capital, how in, we, we talk about culturally relevant, culturally sustaining pedagogies. What does that mean, right? What does that mean to us in our own being, in our own space? Um, you bring up Sandra Cisneros, and, and it reminds me in the book where you, she talks about starting, you, you wrote, she starts about starting Macondo because she was alone seeking familia, right? And I think that recognizing that part of our community too, that is seeking familia. Uh, and again, uh, in, in, this, in this sentence, uh, you speak of this as um, the principles of capital and how blessed we are to be formed by them, you know? So can you speak a little bit to, more to that aspect, the, the principles and in our blessings? I would like to know as, as someone who's working in public education and works with other teachers, um, I think learning our histories is so important, speaking to them, having them at the tip of our tongue at every moment and every opportunity to share with others um, is important. But do you have other, you know, I think, you know, art will save us. I love that. Um, it, I don't know. Do you, do you have anything that you think of when thinking of public education? No, and I'm glad you bring it up because one thing I say in the introduction is that for people to get involved now, one, start writing. And, and I mean that directly. There, there's forces at work to silence us. When we start writing, we defy that. And I'm glad you're asking about educators because especially right now, they might feel despondent or beleaguered 
because they're getting assaulted on many sides. Um, you know, we're talking about attacks in schools now, not just figuratively, but literally. Um, right now we have a new advent of book bannings where they're going after librarians, educators. Um, but as you allude to, as cultural accelerators, they can make a difference by working directly with students. Um, in the preface to the book, I do talk about cultural, uh, cultural capital as different assets that we control. Like you say, our histories, our stories, our networks, individual teachers go a long way by helping students make that connection. And what I would add, like you said, it could be a recapitulation of those books. Um, and what we need cultural accelerators to do is keep working and get in touch with us to build the network. And, and, and that's the larger scheme. And let me be very specific. Here are some specific ways. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Valenzuela's work, there's books that break down these principles. Um, if you want a list of the 80 plus books that were on the Mexican American Studies curriculum, you can go to librotraficante.com, click on BAM books, and there are the books. Dr. Uh, Elaine Romero is a PhD and she wrote an annotated bibliography of those works. Um, I say in the book too, don't mistake this for a book tour. This is not a corporate endeavor to sell a product that is made of pulp. This is a chance to connect cultural accelerators. So if people want to start chapters of Nuestra Palabra, um, please do. And what does that mean? That means you might get two or three students to read their work in your class for the community. And again, I think sometimes when people think of being a Chicano Chicano or a cultural accelerator, some people respect those terms, but they say, well, I haven't marched against ICE. I haven't, you know, uh, been on this campaign to directly defy this or that. No, if you are also giving of your time or energy in our community, that's very significant how our movement, and when I say our, this is not the corporate our, I mean all of us here. Um, one way would be if we can start Nuestra Palabra chapters, which we're doing, then we'd like to connect with you later on. How? We now have a, a multimedia platform radio show. Nuestra Palabra was a in-person reading series that has evolved to multimedia. But what would be beautiful is for the 25th anniversary of Nuestra Palabra, not just to market as a corporate nonprofit experience, it'd be beautiful then if we've got teachers from Tucson, El Paso, Los Angeles, Denver, sharing their students' work on the multimedia platform. And maybe some of us go to these places in person because that's very important. But now we have this whole network, verdad? And th the last thing I'll say about this Here's the other thing. Um, what I learned from Nuestra Palabra, and, and you know, Dr. Valenzuela alluded to this, we, we, we need to build our networks and work with each other previous to the crisis. Yeah. Why, why were a bunch of poets and writers from Houston able to organize a caravan? Well, because we had known these writers from before and we had been organizing literary events in Houston for 12 years. So we were ready for that emergency because we had that network. And, you know, one other example is that, I'll, I'll say this, um, there's one chapter called Poetry Doesn't Make Money. And that's how we dissuade community cultural capital. Someone wants to write a poem in a classroom, their parents might say, para que, no vale. Poetry doesn't make money. And, and, and so we're telling a lot of things in our community that way. However, creating poetry readings creates so much community cultural capital, which is what I personally learned from Nuestra Palabra, so that 14 years into it, we could harness that to, to help and join our other networks to create the Libre Traficante movement, which would keep growing, not as a corporate entity. So, so people shouldn't mistake it for how a business works, um, but as our community works as well. So I'm glad we could touch on different tactics that we can help 
teachers with. So I, I look forward to hearing from teachers and even if I can't or our crew can't go personally, now we're in this new era uh, and I know this podcast is gonna reach some of them. So I'm really excited about that question and working with them. So, yeah, I, I think this is all very exciting. I think um, a major contribution that you make is, is, is to uh, name cultural acceleration. When you give it a name, then you're suggesting to people, you have a choice here, right? Should I lean into these, uh, not only corporate ways of knowing, but these ways of knowing that, you know, reinscribe empire, that reinscribe, um, you know, uh, norms and ways of being in the world that, you know, are more beneficial to the system than they are to us, right? And it seems like what you're doing with this idea of cultural acceleration and community cultural capital as you're saying you actually have a choice here you do not have to go in this direction uh, people will feel differentially empowered encouraged to make those choices but I, I think that uh, I think we would all agree that what makes the difference is, is the community right is like is the network right and the network isn't it's not top down it's horizontal right and so our strength really isn't this top-down narrative, which I think we often beat ourselves over with because we think, uh, you know, where the hell is our, you know, our leaders, right? Where the hell are we, um, you know, like sort of manifesting these pinnacles of achievement, even though many of us are, all of those 80 authors whose books were banned, you know, had reached their own tip, uh, tips of, of their pyramids, right? But, um, but it's, an, it's a narrative that never seems to ever subside that we don't have heroes, right? And um, and so I think that what you're doing is you're flipping the script and what you're saying is that, that you know, uh, uh, together we are heroic, right? Together we are powerful. And that the solution going forward is, is not this individualistic uh, atomized uh, concept of the hero but really this, this uh, one that is um, a, a vision for the future that is um, rooted in community and all of the wonderful values that we get from that. And, you know, we often think of, um, you know, our values as, um, you know, like Mexican values, but what, what comes before that are, in, are in indigenous ways of values that are, um, that are you know, of this continent. Right, and so you you had a an experience that connected you to the totality of the continent when you got to I suspect um, mm -hmm. I suspect when you mm -hmm. got to Teotihuacan because all of a sudden it's not like it's not you know it's not a tour it's not you know just this this uh, visit to a monument but it actually like um, it is the beginning uh, perhaps for you and for many others. Of, of like repositioning our own history and our own heritage, culture, languages, and values in a way that that uh, centers them as opposed to leaves them at the margins of, of history and narrative. Mm -hmm. Well, no, I, I appreciate you putting that context, especially because right now as we speak, we're post this major upheaval that we saw through the COVID-19 shutdown, where th that whole system was called in, into question. And, and I think everything has to be reevaluated because that system, that hierarchy that you talked about, our, our people were the ones that it was the digital divide that we knew about was more pronounced. Mm -hmm. That same system could not get vaccines to our community. Uh, that same system could not get aid to our community, which then reflected on the disconnect we saw during the census, we see during elections. Um, and I think it's becoming clear to our communities, the disconnect that we had to describe so much is here prevalent, prevalent right now. Um, and, 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 and what I would add is that I think in the past, maybe um, some of our community members 
did not speak up when they saw certain um, barriers. Um, I don't want to say direct discrimination because we've got the whole experience of civil rights, but in, in the past, you know, like my parents, they were not able to, to you know, protest or speak up. Why? Um, were they, did they have the doc, were they documented? Did they have English, right? Etc. Um, but there was power there. And that power meant that they could sacrifice and, and suffer the brunt of that discrimination. Con puro corazón, why? So the next generation could, could mm -hmm. succeed, right? And, and, and I'm proof of that. There's so much proof of that. I would say then that right now we're at this point where the, where, where the system that we've been talking about, hierarchical, uh, repressive, is now revealing um, that that is not going to happen as easily as before. So, for example, I've been able to get, you know, advance further uh, education-wise through education. Um, but as we're saying, that because of that power. However, now you've got banning of mixed market studies in Arizona that was passed by legislation. Uh, we've got continued bans sabotaging. Um, education, uh, you know, debt in education as well. And all those are factors influenced by voting. I think now all the power we talked about is more directly at risk. And I think our community members are going to realize that and get more directly engaged in things like voting, uh, educational systems, et cetera. Um, because all that we said is powerful it can go away. And again, this is not a conspiracy theory. I always go back to our our history and culture was banned in Arizona. The, the book has receipts, by the way. Um, I do want to add this too. Um, clearly, Texas at that time was studying tactics implemented in the banning of Mexican studies in Arizona and trying to implement them. We as a community were able to nip those in the bud um, there's a couple essays that talk about some of those specific tactics um, that that are in question. Uh, I, I'll mention this as well. One provision in the law that was in place in Arizona said, and this didn't get as much attention because it's more complex, it prohibited courses that treated students as a group instead of an individual. Well, the power you described is our community, right? I mean, it, like you say, we know each other, we're, we embrace each other, we define each other by the group. That law said it wanted to prevent that. And it's now, not either or, right? It's not either or, it's both and, right? I mean, you can do both, right? But they were like trying to like push away these, these you know, these communitarian ways of knowing that that connect to our our power as the people and our identity they're scared they're running scared <laughs> so we can take it as a as a compliment but i think what you're saying that is really really um uh, really really accurate is that that we're best served when we move forward and we move when we move forward in these ways that that um, involve our identities, our languages, our culture, our heritage, our cultura, that's what keeps us closest to the prize, right? Mm -hmm. That's what accelerates, that's what motivates. And so, I mean, I like to think that when all you have in, you know, in your, in your toolkit is to be hateful and to be hurtful and to be mean, mm -hmm. you've already lost. I mean, if that's all you have, you know, right. I think, uh, you know, we're going through that moment right now. And I think that they, uh, they know that that's all they have. Right. And so mm -hmm. their days are numbered. Uh, when I was in Arizona, uh, I remember talking to Agustin Romero and he said that um, he was the director at the time of the, of the TUSD uh, Mexican American studies program. And what he said was you know, when this attack began, when it commenced, that this is the the dinosaur that's flailing in the tar pit, and that's when it screams its loudest. 
<laughs> and so this is the dinosaur of white supremacy. Not that we'll defeat it in our lifetime, uh, and and it, it's gonna be it's gonna die hard, and it's dying really hard, but it cannot resonate with an entire population that that not only resists that you know th those ways of knowing and being in the world that are so disrespectful and mm -hmm. and so non-inclusive and arrogant towards the other but that doesn't motivate or inspire that's why i'm excited i'm really excited i think we should all be excited i really am excited because because I, I i you know i think we see the tip of the pyramid it's it's mm -hmm. it's within reach and then it becomes a new a new horizon right mm -hmm. and and you build your new horizon you mobilize towards your new horizon and yeah you're going to get attacked but uh in in the process it's a cumulative history that we engender right that that uh that we can be proud of mm -hmm. and, and it's a win-win you know yeah. at the end of the day Everybody how beautiful benefits. to have all of our youth fulfilled exciting i mean that's really what blew my mind about the band it's like Okay, so when these Chicanas and Chicanos embrace education, they're gonna what become readers and writers like us, like our professors. Like that's wonderful. Like I was like, you know, and like you're saying, we need so many thinkers right now. Why to come up with new ways to approach climate crises, uh, new ways to navigate a multimedia global world, and and you know, let, let's stay at the forefront of that. So, so yeah, I, I, I'm optimistic as well. And clearly only art can save us and, and we're at the cutting edge of, of something wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great way to, I think, to wrap this up because um, uh, we're definitely onto something. Did you have any final kind of reflections, Patricia? Any thoughts just to close us out? Yes, I, I, I do. I do want to hold on to, you know, to um, Dr. Diaz, what you said that at the same time, we are, we have to be, he didn't say vigilant, but we have to be prepared, right? We have to be prepared. Um, and we have to already have those relationships and those networks. And, and I do want to say, I think, you know, as a public educator, we, we have work to do. We have work cut out for us. We, we have to give opportunities for our readers, our writers, our artists, our thinkers to to really uh, layer on that other that other layer on the pyramid, right? To create it, but we need that foundation, right? And to build on the strength of that foundation of that beautiful pyramid that was left to us, right? As their as its caretakers, right? And then I think, you know, cultivating that intuition that uh, that will be our cultural accelerator as teachers, how do we do that, right? And we do that by connecting and knowing our history, um, not just in, in terms of, of here, but as Dr. Valenzuela, our indigenous ways of knowing that really speak to us and are, are, are in us, right? They flow in our blood and then, um, letting there be space in classrooms for that, right? In our curriculum for that, because that will really um, just make us shine, you know, uh, and, and give us that space and, and uh, a moment to uh, exist very, very differently in spaces that are, are not created for us to exist in. So mm -hmm. thank you so much, such beautiful words and, 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 um, I'm just very energized and grateful. So thank you. I am too. Uh, I mean, we wish you great success uh, with this book that I think will open a lot of avenues, a lot of imagination, a lot of like real kind of intellectual reframing of uh, concepts that we that we use. Um, I mean, I I think even on the personal level, I, I think of revolution and how it's a it's a revolution of the mind right that we're that we're calling for and um i mean i won't I, I, if i can't dance i won't have a revolution right and so you're asking us to dance and <laughs> i i appreciate that call to you know to bring the fullness of of, of who we are 
in, in that expressive and those expressive aspects of who we are into into education and into ultimately um, you know social transformation. Gracias. No, gracias a ustedes, and I appreciate uh, really appreciate this discussion and. I hope that the intellectual adrenaline that I feel right now is something that every student can feel every day in and out. So gracias. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.